0: From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day.
1: The bellicose Chinese reaction to US Speaker Nancy Pelosi's Taiwan visit represented another escalation of tensions in our region as China becomes more assertive. At the same time, at a bilateral level, since the change of government, there have been mixed messages from the Chinese about the future relationship with Australia. On Wednesday, China's ambassador to Australia appeared at the National Press Club. He talked about wanting a positive relationship between the two countries, but gave no ground on bilateral issues, such as the trade restrictions China has imposed on Australian exports there. And he was predictably hardline on Taiwan. To discuss China's intentions, we have today Nick Bisley, Professor of International Relations at La Trobe University. His expertise is in Asian foreign relations, great power politics and Australia's foreign and defence policy. Nick Bisley, how do you see the blow up from China over the Pelosi-Taiwan visit? Firstly, was the visit wise?
0: Uh, Well, I don't think it was wise in the sense that the region was already in a pretty febrile state um, and the bilateral relationship between the US and China is, you know, prior to the visit, was at its lowest ebb in, in decades. Um, and having the person who's third in line, uh, sorry, second in the line of succession after the vice president, uh, lead a congressional delegation is viewed, sort of if you step back from it, as a pretty significant political gesture. And of course, the the, the politics of how you handle Taiwan has always been a very delicate, carefully controlled, constructed dance with a lot of ambiguity on all sides. Uh, when you add something like this in, it really uh, roils things up very considerably. And and so viewed from that perspective, it, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And you can bet your bottom dollar parts of the national security establishment in Washington really would rather Pelosi hadn't gone. Um, China's reaction was to some degree predictable. In many respects, someone like Pelosi leading a delegation to Taipei gives uh, China very little options, you know, has to respond very strongly. Otherwise, in the context of where their politics are, Xi Jinping has to stand up firmly to all of this. Um, But even then, I mean, I I think there was some surprise at just the extent of uh, what they have done, both militarily, so the the live fire exercises, the level of risk that it entailed, um, and the fact that it's ongoing and Looks like it may well be going for some period of time. Plus the extent of economic sanctions that were introduced. Now they themselves were not major, but viewed in the context of military operations, economic sanctions, pil- uh, diplomatic, formal diplomatic um, actions, you know, the calling of the ambassador, the issuing of Dimash, um, meant that this was pretty a, a pretty wide-ranging set of activities. And then most recently, they've cut off. I think at least eight different channels of dialogue between the us and china uh, including one on climate change which i think even pretty seasoned analysts or or watchers of this stuff had thought was probably not going to be cut off just because it's in it's not in beijing's interest to do it so um it's this is a big deal and we're really we're we're properly in a kind of crisis moment i think
1: so you see this Chinese reaction as a new step up in assertiveness rather than simply a flare-up of the ongoing tensions?
0: I do think that's the case. I think what we what we are probably entering into at least for the next few months is is a period of, of much of sharply heightened uh, instability and, and military kind of friction, if you like, in and around Taiwan. Plus, I think China has made... The choice, a very public choice, to downgrade even further the political relationship, uh, and certainly judging by the language that that's being used, I wouldn't imagine any shift um, away from any of that anytime between now and the National Party Congress uh, that'll probably be held in November this year.
1: So, how do you see China's intentions? towards Taiwan in the medium term. At the National Press Club today, the Chinese ambassador stated in relation to Taiwan reunification, and I quote, when compelled, we are ready to use all necessary means. And on what that meant, he said, you can use your imagination. So are we looking here at possible military action in the medium term and if so, what's the likely timetable?
0: The answer to that, unfortunately, always begins with a bit of a depends, because China has made very clear for, for decades now that under certain circumstances, it would use military force to deal with what it sees as you know, a rogue province. Um, and those circumstances are largely around a unilateral declaration of independence by Taiwan uh, or some other really significant move away from from the old status quo. Uh, so in some respects, Ambassador Xiao is kind of repeating an old line, but of course, in the current context, it's that the things are rather different when uh, you've had firstly, what it looks like from Beijing's point of view, a series of pretty provocative steps supporting an independence minded uh, leadership. That's not to say that in Taipei, that's not to say the leadership in Taipei is about to to sever. Oh, it's, about to really make a, a formal declaration of independence, but nonetheless, Beijing sees Washington and co as supporting some kind of break from the status quo. Um, that so, you know, the time frame looks like. Uh, so, just to say one other thing is that in January 2019, Xi Jinping made clear in a speech to mark the start of the new year that uh, the problem or the issue of Taiwan would would in his words, not be passed down to the next generation. And what he meant by that was, you know, the, the, the long run view of the PRC had been that that Taiwan would eventually, through the kind of sheer weight of gravity almost, be absorbed eventually uh, by the PRC. it was just a matter of waiting game, making sure they didn't run off and more importantly weren't encouraged by the Americans to to try to make a formal break. Time was on their side and there was no need to take risky or provocative actions, um, and particularly actions that might lead them to a conflict with the United States. Uh, she made this declaration a couple few years ago saying, you know, basically indicating that that waiting game approach has kind of gone come to an end. Um, now, of course, he's given himself or looks to have given himself, essentially, as long as he wants in office prior to that the norm post post Dung was, you know, 10 years and you're out. Uh, so I don't think he's accelerated the time frame dramatically, but in the medium term, I think what, we've, what we see out of this crisis is that China's risk appetite has gone up and its willingness to put up with what it sees as kind of provocations has gone down. So the, the likelihood of them using military force to coerce uh, Taiwan, I think it's not going to happen this year or next year, but its likelihood of occurring over the next four to five years, I think, is, has distinctly increased.
1: So how are countries in the Asian region reacting to China's stance at the moment? Are they increasingly concerned? Are they drawing together? What's happening?
0: Everyone is pretty um, uneasy about the direction of travel at the moment. Um, I think under President Trump, the relationship between the US and China went backwards quite dramatically. I think a lot of people had hoped Biden would bring back a, a, a more steady hand and less heat in the relationship. That hasn't really occurred. I mean, the optics have shifted, but the underlying hostility hasn't, or the, the, the underlying you know, difficulty of the relationship has remained. Um, and as as that becomes more and more kind of a part of everyday life, across the region, everyone who who has a stake in this, and frankly, just about every country in the region does, because uh, if there is a, a proper conflict between the US and China, there is Yeah, everyone loses pretty significantly. Um, The other issue, I think, though, that we're finding is that the thinness of the Chinese uh, Communist Party's skin on this issue is really quite something. Um, We saw um, Foreign Minister Wong say pretty non-controversial things, didn't endorse Pelosi's visit. She didn't uh, say anything except to say that China's military behavior might be disproportionate we want to see a de-escalation of uh the the circumstances and to take the heat out of things and it's in everyone's interest to have a a cool hand at the tiller and you know she was pretty roundly um the the response from beijing was pretty sharp uh and so i think there's a sense we don't quite know how to handle this one because the usual diplomatic um, niceties are not working and cutting through at the moment uh, with Beijing. So I think there's a fear that the risk level has gone up. The, the sort of fragility of the circumstances is really quite extreme. Uh, and it, it, as a sort of before, every, it's in everyone's interest to avoid anything getting any worse. But it seems to be very difficult to find the right uh, balance of words and deeds that will get. Uh, the Chinese in particular, to, to step back a little. And part of the issue is just Taiwan is such a such a sort of neuralgic point for the leadership. And as we step into the month leading up to the, the National Party Congress, the big fi- every five-year uh, gathering of the party, uh, elite and faithful in Beijing, um, I think that the sensitivity around this issue grows.
1: So do you think eventually we're going to see a China... America military clash over Taiwan?
0: I don't think it's inevitable. Um, and in fact, the 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 planning around this on both sides, and particularly on Washington side, to avoid this thing is very significant. The issue we've got, and to some degree it's been illustrated by the Pelosi visit, is that the constraints that domestic politics puts on each side means that we could end up in a situation where they're backed into a corner and find that there's few ways out, other than um, some kind of military action, which then escalates. Um, one hy- one version of these events, um, if you're looking forward, is somewhat unpalatable to think through, but it's probably worth at least sort of beginning to think about. And that is, do we accept that China's, co- we're just going to have to live with China's rule over Taiwan, and I'm, I'm endorsing that to be really clear, I'm not saying that's what we ought to do. But if the options are either a major conflict between the United States and America, the prospects of it going nuclear are very, very significant, or PRC's ambitions to, as it sees it, reclaim Taiwan for the for, for the great Chinese nation, as they describe it, um, then that might be a deal with, with which we may have to make our peace, because the events of this past few week or so have shown that a the stakes are really high and b China is is in a mode of operation where its decision making about Taiwan is not going to be strictly rational and without wanting to I I think the parallel can be overdrawn but when we look back in February 2022 thinking about what Putin would do in relation to, to Ukraine We all thought, you know, he's not going to do a fully blown invasion, it doesn't make any sense, it's not in his interest to do so. Um, I think we've always thought that about Taiwan, it's just not in the PRC's interest to do the fully blown military operation. And the lesson has got to be from from Ukraine is that sometimes rationality doesn't always win.
1: Now let's turn to the bilateral relationship. We've had conflicting signals since the election. There've been those ministerial meetings recommencing between China and uh, Austra- Chinese and Australian ministers, and. The ambassador said that the new government provided a possible opportunity to reset the relationship. On the other hand, China has blasted Australia on occasions and most recently attacked Senator Wong over her comments. Where do you see the bilateral relationship standing at the moment and where is it going to go?
0: Well, it's certainly better than it was when um, the Morrison government um, faced the electorate in May of this year. Um, at that point, we effectively had a non-functioning political relationship with our most important trading partner and the region's most important resident power. Um, so that anything uh, that that's improvement on that is a, a good thing. We, we, we need to have open um, channels. They, we need to be able to um, interact freely. Our ministers, um, senior officials need to be able to interact. So we're we're slowly getting on to a better path. Um, but I think the initial optimism around uh, the kind of olive branch that Ambassador Xiao I think, clearly reached, presented earlier in the year when he um, took up his post, uh, I think it, it is going to be a, a, a quite a bit of time before we can realise the full benefits, so to speak of that, if, if at all, you know, are we going to really get back to the situation that we were in, probably under Abbott's government, when the relationship was probably about as positive as it's ever been, shortly the signature of the free trade agreement um, was probably the high point of the the kind of full spectrum relationship. It's hard to imagine us getting all the way back there now. China also, unfortunately, is playing this out very publicly. Um, I think the challenge in diplomacy with a country like the PRC has always been historically, to, you, you know, you you, talk, you did have difficult conversations with them, but you did it privately and everyone was happy, provided it remained private. Um, previously, it was in the, in, under the Morrison government, we saw the public, the diplomacy, sorry, the diplomacy becoming very public. Uh, and that unfortunately has continued. So, you know, you saw Foreign Minister. Wang, say on the sidelines of the, the meeting in the region, the uh, East Asia summit, foreign ministers meeting, when he met with uh, Penny Wong, uh, to say, you know, we can get back on a on a uh, even keel if you do the following four things. Um, and the moment that happens, and the, and the, the fallout in the press was, you know, Australia was issued with demands, and and you could tell Prime Minister Albanese, he was like. A, I've got demands, even if they weren't presented as demands, I can't accept demands. So the public nature of all of this and the, you know, the heat that's in, th- in the region at the moment around Taiwan, um, but you could equally imagine being around other issues mean that I think we're a long way from getting the kind of properly functional relationship that we'd like, let alone having the sort of positive relationship where we can realize the as yet un. Um, Unrealised benefits or opportunities of the, the free trade agreement, for example, that were created in 2014 and has all these promises around. What could what could be the next steps? And they, you know, we're a long, long way from those things um, being realised.
1: The Prime Minister's been pretty adamant that the relationship won't fundamentally change unless the Chinese remove those restrictions on our exports to them. Do you think basically the government has handled this situation well, this ambiguity? It's clearly a bit suspicious of being uh, sort of played along in some of the uh, gestures the Chinese are making.
0: Yeah, and they are. I mean, the ALP remains um, very sensitive to the criticism that they're sort of soft on foreign policy, soft on national security, and soft on China. They they kind of, I think, to some degree, have internalised that narrative that the coalition has has um, painted around them. Uh, And so, I think there's they're, they're approaching this with a good degree of caution. Plus, you know, I think there are some pretty serious. Uh, China hawks in the ALP government, um, Defence Minister Miles probably being Exhibit A on that front. So I think that they're probably playing about as good a hand as you can, given the larger international context and the domestic political context. Uh, and the, the access that Australian traders have lost to the PRC is in Beijing's gift, if it wants, you know, it hasn't, it, it, the, the steps it's taken to exclude Australian traders, whether it's beef, barley, lobster, wine, or the others, uh, all of those could be very quickly unwound by by Beijing if it wanted to do so. So I think the government's probably sensible to say, you know, we, we'll, you know, we're not making any significant moves until you take these steps that you've you've chosen to undertake and could very easily unpick um, pretty rapidly. So I think that. They're playing a reasonable hand in what is a pretty difficult set of circumstances.
1: Given the wider tensions and the intensifying of uh, the situation, are we now in the situation where the Australia-China bilateral relationship is really mainly a subset of the wider US-China relationship or China-West relationship? Um,
0: I, th- I think if anything, it's the latter, I, I don't, I, I would resist the characterization that is, you know, that we're essentially subordinate to the dynamics of the US China relationship. I think the the particularities of the difficulties that we've got with Beijing and or any opportunities are largely of our may, of our making, that's to say between the two countries, not not really a, um, a, a question of just being caught up in the crossfire, if you like, of, of great power rivalry. Um, so yeah, they're particularly grumpy. For example, with us excluding them from, excluding Huawei and ZTE from the five G rollout, and that was absolutely an Australian decision. It was not um, driven by the Americans. The PRC have tried to portray it as something the Americans made us do, but in fact, they quite the opposite um, is the case. And the Morris, uh, the, the uh, Tur- Malcolm Turnbull will tell you this at any, <laughs> any opportunity. Um, he's rather proud of that uh, particular decision. But I think the complexity around the region more broadly, the ways in which the US, its allies um, are handling the relationship with China and the way issues, I mean, one of the big challenges with this thing is that everything is being caught up in it. Uh, it's, it's almost hard to imagine. It's, it's difficult to imagine some areas not being caught up in the contest just because it's it's the way in which the US and China and that and the West more generally is viewing the competition. We're, we're, we're kind of, we are wittingly or not at times kind of re- rolling out the Cold War playbook in which we're you know in a full spectrum competition and everything from what we call the region through to um, you know who can visit which countries and under what circumstances everything becomes a subject of of contestation and seen as a a slight or a strategic backslap. Um, So I think, because of that, it makes the management of the bilateral relationship that bit much more complex. That said, I think, you know, the dynamics of, you know, great power rivalry in Asia could continue. But you could also imagine a set of scenarios in which our bilateral relationship with China improves to some degree. But I think that larger context will always mean that there are some pretty hard limits around uh, around what can be done.
1: Now, China is obviously expanding its influence in the Pacific region, although it's had some setbacks in that. We saw recently Prime Minister Albanese getting on well with Pacific leaders at the Pacific Islands Forum, notably with Solomon's Prime Minister Sogabari. But will the new Australian government's greater attention to the Pacific and the popularity, of course, of its climate policy, in fact, be able to counter the Chinese push in the region in the longer term?
0: I, I think there's good prospects of it, but this has got a long way to play, Um I think Australia's got form at being reactive to issues in the Pacific um, and from time to time um, paying a good amount of attention and saying the right things, but sustaining that over a period of time has has proven to be difficult. Um, We've got the expertise, but often we don't quite have the attention span or resourcing, Uh, and that's where. PRC's advantage really steps up, which is the, the scale of resources they can bring to bear on this, both in the sense of the number of people they can send out, the missions they can build, the amount of money they can put on the table. Even though they're not a significant aid player now, we still provide a good, you know, significant, always orders magnitude more aid and development support to the Pacific than the PRC does. But they have potentially very, very deep pockets, can play a long game and have a lot of resources to throw at things. So. Um, so it, it, it will require a sustained effort and a sustained effort w- in collaboration with with others in the region, uh, and, and and will be need to be played out over a, over a long period of time. So I think there's good reason to be optimistic that is, that the goodwill that's on display um, and, the, and the good relationships that are being built um, set us set the foundation for what can be a, a pretty productive period. The PRC is by no means you know playing a masterful game of twelve dimensional chess in the Pacific. It, it's you know, had a whole bunch of own goals. Um, so, you know, it, it, you, know you, you wouldn't just say, okay, let's just pack up and, and write this area off to, to Beijing. Um, but it will, as I said, take time, and most importantly, will require focus uh, and, and a considerable a commitment to doing things in the Pacific quite differently from the way we've done in the past, moving away from a, you know, often quite instrumental and at times patronising approach to one that's much more equal and supportive of um, the Pacific peoples on their terms. It can be done, but it's, it's going to take a while and um, don't underestimate PRC resolve on this front.
1: Challenging times all round. Nick Bisley, thank you very much for talking with us today. And That's all for today's politics podcast. Thank you to my producer, Ellen Duffy. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now.
0: Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.